Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. The Isley Brothers' first hit was Shout. Rock and roll was new, soul was even newer, and Ernie Isley, Cincinnati's own, was seven years old. It was 1959. In the 60s, they had Twist and Shout and a run with Motown. For a while, Jimi Hendrix was their lead guitarist and lived in their mom's spare room. Then in 1969, they reintroduced themselves to the world. They weren't a singing group anymore. They were a band with little brother Ernie on bass. The song was It's Your Thing. Ernie Isley, brother Marvin Isley, and brother-in-law Chris Jasper reinvigorated the band, starting in the early 1970s. Ernie moved from bass to guitar, and his sound was key to the family's revival. They were the rare R&B group, which featured raw, extended guitar solos. The Isley brothers had a nearly unparalleled run of hits, starting with It's Your Thing and continuing into the mid-1980s. In fact, they're the only group in popular music who charted in every decade since the 50s, and their influence extends far beyond their own original recordings. They've also been the basis of hip-hop hits, like Bone Thugs and Harmony's Crossroads, Ice Cube's It Was a Good Day, and Kendrick Lamar's I. When we talked in 2015, the Isley Brothers had just released a new box set that collected all of their records from the end of the 60s through the beginning of the 80s, Ernie Isley's heyday in the band. Let's get into my conversation with perhaps Soul and Funk's greatest guitarist, Ernie Isley. Ernie Isley, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Hey, man. Glad to be here. So do you remember when Shout hit, like what it was like for you and your family? Yeah. Uh, There was a lot of excitement. Uh, Nothing uh, sounded like that song on the radio. Uh, Nothing sounds like it now. And it, uh, from the beginning, that song was a, uh, has been a crowd pleaser. When my brothers would do it, the way they would do it uh, live, it was a showstopper. It was the song, it was their first national breakthrough hit, but it was also the song that made them a headliner because nobody, and I mean nobody, wanted, wanted to follow them or could follow them. If they said, oh, no, put the Isleys on in front of us. Or when they would do Shout, it'd be like maybe like 45 minutes before the next act could come on, whoever that was, <laughs> because it was pandemonium. And so it was like, you know, there was a lot of folks that would be like, well, <clears throat> I know I, I, I heard that uh, Otis Redding said, uh, I'm not going to be trying to follow them three guys. Because, <laughs> you know, they're, they're, they're not taking no prisoners. So, you know, they're. They got that song. They got, they got that song, and they got Twist and Shout too. At that time, I'm not gonna try to follow them guys. Did you always intend to join the family business? No, 
Um, I was growing up, I was trying to play uh, Little League Baseball center field. I was um, riding my bike, going to school. You know, there's all kind of things to to be introduced to as a, as a kid that are new and exciting. And music was just one of them. I started playing drums, though, at age of 12. And I uh, did my first live gig with my older brothers when I was 14 in Philadelphia. Martha and the Vandellas were on the show. They didn't have a drummer. So I played with them, too, you know, dancing in the street, heat wave and all that stuff. And in between the two acts, <laughs> my eldest brother Kelly handed me a $50 bill and told me to go get a hot dog. <laughs> I'm like, my God. So I'm 14 years old, $50 bill. Still got my stage stuff on her. Go through the backstage doors. And when the doors swing open, all of these girls my same age start screaming at me like I'm Justin Bieber. Shame he was just up there. Oh, you know, he plays so well. He's so cute. Da, 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 da. Uh, you go to school down here. Uh, what's your phone number? And I was like, man, I need to move to Philly. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't get that kind of action in my school. <laughs> and, you know, the environment of the show and all that. I was like, man, this is a real rush, you know. It seems to me like there were a few moments when the band really asserted its identity, and, and the first was It's Your Thing, which was the big hit single that came out of leaving Motown Records. So your older brothers had been had been signed to Motown for a few years and had had, I mean, I had had a big, big hit in this old heart of mine, among other mm-hmm. records, but when you're a vocal group signed to Motown, you're never going to be the Temptations of the Four Tops. And it seemed like it's your thing on which you played. It was the first big hit that you played on was a song that was like, that was explicitly about, you know, we're not part of this machine anymore. We're going to, we're going to do our own thing. Yeah. That was the way some people interpreted. Yes. And, um, no one that was ever signed to Motown and had success at Motown, if they should leave, that was the kiss of death to their career, proverbially speaking. The first group to defy that was Isley Brothers, because they left and started their own label, Teaneck Records, and the first record on it was, in the spring of 1969, was It's Your Thing. I want to play one of my favorite Isley Brothers records. Um, it's from one of my favorite Isley Brothers LPs, which is given it back from 1971. And, you know, we were talking about the ways that you and your brothers kind of asserted your identities. And, and this feels like another big turning point uh, as a listener. This feels like uh, another big turning point for the band. And I think it's kind of unusual for that to come in the form of a covers record. But I think if you take a listen to this song uh, as a listener, you'll understand this is a medley of uh, the Neil Young song, Ohio, and Jimi Hendrix's mm-hmm. Machine Gun. Yes.
What did your brothers think about, I mean, like, of all the changes that were happening in uh, R&B, as R&B and soul were becoming, uh, were getting heavier and, and becoming funk, like, mostly it was not heading towards guitar solos. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Right. So right. what did your older brothers think about you coming in at however old you were, 18 years old or something, and saying like, oh, you know what this song needs? Just like a really ripping solo. Well, you know, the songs we were doing, if you're going to do Ohio Machine Gun, is a, uh, you know, which is Ohio, Neil Young song, uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, and you know, Machine Gun is Jimi Hendrix. If you're going to do that, you know, it's going to have guitar on it. And the, the both songs are very passionate in terms of their feeling. And uh, it was only logical from our point of view that since we don't think of ourselves as being categorized, it was only logical that we were going to go where we felt led. By the time we got to that lady, it was like, you guys are a brand new group, you know, you got this brand new sound. I'll finish my conversation with Ernie Isley of the Isley Brothers after a break. We'll talk about his relationship with his friend, sometime bandmate and sometime housemate, Jimi Hendrix. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Thanks for listening to Bullseye. What's the meaning of work and when does being an amateur trump experience? The TED Radio Hour is a journey through fascinating ideas, astonishing inventions, fresh approaches to old problems, and new ways to think and create. Find the TED Radio Hour podcast at npr.org slash podcasts and on the NPR One app. Jesse Thorne here. I'm taking Bullseye on the Road in November. It's our world tour of several American cities. Get your tickets now while you can. They're going fast. Come see me and William H. Macy and Barney Frank and Tavi Gevinson, John Hodgman... Uh, the director of the Mutter Museum was going to do medical experiments on me, apparently. Uh, Ray Suarez, Dan Deacon, so many more. Music, comedy, and interviews at every tour stop. Go to bullseyetour.com to get your tickets. You will not want to miss this. If you're in Philadelphia, Boston, New York City, Washington, D.C., or our own great city of Los Angeles, California, bullseyetour.com to get tickets. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to Ernie Isley, the guitarist for the Isley Brothers, who made hits like Twist and Shout and Who's That Lady. He started gigging with the band when he was just 14 years old. The Isley Brothers have a new box set of their work, the Isley Brothers, the RCA Victor, and Teaneck Album Masters. You and your brothers, uh, Ernie Isley, were among the few groups that got to play for real on uh, Soul Train, most people were yes. most people were most people were singing or lip syncing to tracks, um, and we have a little clip of you guys playing that lady a year after it came out on Soul Train in 
It's a pretty amazing performance, Ernie. I feel like when you're listening to it, you can almost hear the engineer at Soul Train uh, being like, <laughs> oh, geez, the guitar is soloing, like trying to look for yeah. the fader for the guitar. Mm-hmm, yeah. Yeah, but uh, that song turned a lot of heads, and it uh, certainly made us different from any other group that was out there, a vocal group, particularly if that's how you started. I mean, we were still morphing into uh, wherever we were going. And uh, that song was uh, certainly a, uh, a part of that growth. Well, let's hear a little bit of the Isley Brothers and Fight the Power from 1975. Listen to that song or watch you guys play, uh, watch you guys play on Soul Train. Um, what impresses me is the way that you synthesize these different aesthetics. You know, you're bringing all these sounds together. Like that lady is a really sweet ballad that is set off by you giving a really intense guitar solo. You know, Fight the Power is a really heavy, uh, really heavy funk record that is set off by, you know, the kind of vocal back and forth that, you know, your brothers could have done in 1962 uh, mm -hmm. in the chorus was, you know, how, to what extent was that, a, to what extent was that synthesis conscious and to what extent was it just the group of people that you were? I think we were just going with it. Uh, in, in terms of uh, trying to describe, I mean, Fight the Power was and is just something that everybody at some point has to do. You wind up dealing with something that is resisting your personal wishes or your will. And you're going to have to fight that thing. You're not going to lay down to it. It represents... a uh, a call to uh, personal freedom, personal expression. It doesn't mean that the other person has to like it. I mean, who cares? I'll go in my own style, at my own pace, as my actual self, without apology. I'll finish my conversation with Ernie Isley of the Isley Brothers after a break. We'll talk about his relationship with his friend, sometime bandmate and sometime housemate Jimi Hendrix. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Welcome back to Fireside Chat on KMAX. With me in studio to take your calls is the dopest duo on the West Coast, Oliver Wong and Morgan Rhodes. Go ahead, caller. Hey, 
hey, uh, I'm looking for a music podcast that's insightful and thoughtful, but like also helps me discover artists and albums that I've never heard of. Yeah, man. Sounds like you need to listen to Heat Rocks every week. Myself and I'm Morgan Rhodes and my co-host here, Oliver Wong, talk to influential guests about a canonical album that has changed their lives. Guests like Moby, Open Mike Eagle, talk about albums by Prince, Joni Mitchell, and so much more. Yo, what's that show called again? Heat Rocks, deep dives into hot records. Every Thursday on Maximum Fun. I'm Lisa Hagen. And I'm Chris Axel. We're the hosts of No Compromise, NPR's new podcast exploring one family's mission to reconstruct America using two powerful tools, guns and Facebook. New episodes drop every Tuesday. Join us for the No Compromise podcast from NPR. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We're listening to my conversation with Ernie Isley from 2015. He's the guitarist for the Isley Brothers, a group with literally decades and decades of hits, from Shout to It's Your Thing, Twist and Shout, many, many more. Let's hear the rest of our interview. Why don't we listen to an Isley Brothers song from before my guest Ernie Isley joined the band uh, when he was just like a 10 or a 12-year-old with Jimi Hendrix. Um, and testify. I think it is a pretty remarkable thing to be able to say, oh yeah, when I was 11 years old, Jimi Hendrix lived at my house. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was cool. You know, I... Sitting in study hall when I was like, you know, 16. It's like, they're talking about all your experiences. Like, yes, I am. <laughs> you know, <laughs> without his record, I am. You know, I already knew who he was. And, uh, you know, I already knew that he played very well, obviously. I never heard anybody play like that, play the guitar like that. And uh, like when Ed Sullivan said uh, for the very first time, ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles, you know. I'm on one side of the couch. My younger brother Marvin's on the opposite side, and in the middle is Jimi Hendrix himself. And but there was no clap of thunder or, or nothing like that. And uh, a few days went by, and there was a meeting with with everybody in the band. And my elder brother Kelly took the floor, and one of the things he said was, "You know, these guys, this whole Beatle thing—they have changed everything. This is no hype. This is legit." And, uh, you know, I don't know about what's going to happen with Connie Francis or Paul Lanka or Bobby Rydell or Fabian. I think we're going to be all right because I understand they do shout and twist and shout. Now, they have two guitar players, but we got Jimmy. And when he said that, I looked over at Jimmy, and he was grinning at that remark ear to ear like the Cheshire Cat. <laughs> Because it was true, you know, and and uh, you know, you never know who you're, who you're, you know, who you're rubbing elbows with. They did get him his very first Fender guitar, and his very first professional recording session was with the Isley Brothers. It must have been remarkable for you as a teenager when he became one of the most important and acclaimed rock players in the world. It was sort of like human proof positive, this guy that had come out of your house and become 
a rock and roll <laughs> god and not just not an you know had broken beyond the boundaries of R&B even yes yes he um he came by the house with Kelly like a, a little before Monterey Pop he came in the house with and Kelly said, Marvin, Ernie, Jimmy is killing them in England. And we're like, England? What's he doing over there? <laughs> and Marvin looked on, is that Jimmy? Because he was dressed different. You know, he had velvet pants with bell bottoms. He wasn't wearing patent leather shoes. He had boots. He had a ruffled shirt. He had a hat. He had a vest. He had rings on every finger. He walked down the hallway or something like that. He sounded like a cowboy, like Shane or something. <laughs> and, you know, you look at him and say, yeah, that's still him. He's just dressed different. You pick up a guitar and start playing, it's like, yeah, that's definitely him. That's, <laughs> that's him. So, you know, it was, if he'd be playing, you know, we'd, it, he could play and be playing, and it's like we would laugh, not because it was funny, but because it was good. You know, he was that good. You'd be like, like as a kid, you know, you see somebody do something, and they do it so well. You'd be like, man, it makes you laugh. Because, man, I wish I could do that. Isn't that great? You know. But he was the only one playing like that. And uh, um, the fact that he uh, went on to um, do what he did, so Lord have mercy. We had a show in 1969 at Yankee Stadium. Easter thing was out. And my brother Kelly called him and said, Jimmy, we want you to, it was June. Jimmy, we want you to do the show with us festival show. He said, oh man, really? Oh, I'd love to, but let me speak to my people I get back to you. And a few days went by and he called back. He said, Kelly, you know, I'd love to do it, but I got this commitment in August to something called the uh, Woodstock Arts and Music Festival. Woodstock Arts and Music Festival in uh, upstate New York on some kind of farm. And uh, the promoters are concerned that if I play Yankee Stadium concert, that it might hurt ticket sales up there. So they don't want me to do it. <laughs> of course, obviously, he didn't have a crystal ball either. <laughs> but, <laughs> but uh, uh, you know, you, you, it, it's, uh, it's uh, really, like, spiritually uh, uh, an embrace to have these kind of uh, shared uh, experiences. You were just starting your own career when Jimi Hendrix died. How did it? How did it hit you when it happened? Oh, 1970. I was 18. I was on the college campus of C.W. Post College, part of Long Island University in New York, and I was coming down from the music building, and. Somebody said, I heard somebody say something like, did you hear Jimi Hendrix just died? I'm like, get out of here. You know, that's a publicity stunt. That's not, no, no. And uh, I was thinking about um, the whole thing that that year had been going on with. Paul is dead if you play the record backwards and you hear that Paul is dead. The, you know, that's the show business. It's the record company trying to sell some records, whatever, but it's not true. And I got to my room and turned on the radio, and I heard that. And it's kind of, you know, just a shock because because uh, it was a shock. It's like, how does something like that, you know, some things happen. They happen real quick and where you don't have a chance to say 
wait a minute or stop or hold it or bye. <laughs> you know, it just happened real quick. So that was kind of weird that that happened. And, uh, you know, all of us, and the brothers, we just looked upon that as like weird that that, that, that would happen. And not too long after that, too, uh, Janis Joplin passed away. So that made it just weirder. Did it change? Uh, did it change the way that you thought about working in music? Mm, you know what? It changes. It changes. This is life first and foremost. It's life. And I think of Jimi Hendrix as a person because that's how I knew him. That's how I was introduced to him. There's a lot of other people that can relate to the icon, to the statue, you know, to all of that huff and puff stuff that comes on with being in the music business. But uh, when it, when I think of him, I don't I don't think of that at all. I think about somebody watching Saturday morning cartoons and uh, Super Chicken and uh, Bugs Bunny playing the guitar like it's a toy. Uh, playing it all the time. I didn't know why he played so much. He didn't, he didn't need to practice. He was that good. I read an interview that you, Ernie, and, and your and your brother, uh, Marvin, and uh, Chris Jasper did in the mid-70s. Mm -hmm. um, and you could almost, there was this part, I don't, and I don't remember which one of the three of you was saying it, um, but I think it might have been you, Ernie, uh, where you were saying, you know, that that twist and shout stuff, that's not us. We're not going around shouting woo. Um, <laughs> and I thought it must have been it, it must have been interesting uh, to be in a situation where you had these older brothers who were such brilliant and talented musicians, such brilliant and gifted singers and songwriters. Um, but that you and your cohort cohort were as well, you know, and you were you were bound together by f by a lifetime of being a family. But you were also, you know, you were also sort of two groups. You know what I mean? You were this trio yes. that you had played with in high school, and these older these older brothers who you saw when they were home from the road. You know. Mm -hmm. And I wonder what that was like for you to be to be these kind of these two teams merged into one. Oh, you had the seasoning in terms of experience, personal experience in the business. And at the same time, you had the spirit of we're not going to be confined by what we've already performed. When you have a when you're blessed with the longevity and uh, all of the different musical changes that uh, rock and roll has gone through, uh, it's nearly impossible in terms of a show to um, fully express um, the, the entire resume. It's a very thick, Isley Brothers are a very thick musical filet mignon, you know, and we're trying to have that bad boy well done with no pink showing. And if you like steak, it's like that's what our music is. It's gonna, it's gonna have some some flavor. Well, Ernie Isley, I really appreciate you uh, coming out and being on Bullseye. It was really an honor to get to talk to you. 
So it's been, it's great. So this is kind of like therapy. It's wonderful. Ernie Isley. Let's go out on one more Isley Brothers song, Harvest for the World, from the album of the same name. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is produced from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California, where my daughter Grace and I just completed our greatest project, our magnum opus, which is uh, from our friend Mark Frauenfelder of Boing Boing's book, Maker Dad. It's like a little gimbal thingy that you attach to a kite string, and then you attach a tiny USB camera to that, and then you fly the kite and you shoot stable video from a kite. Did this all with a hand drill and some super glue. This week's guests, if you didn't notice, are the pride of Cincinnati, Ohio. We just got picked up by WVXU in Cincinnati. So we just want to salute. Hey, what's up, Cincinnati? We see you. I see you, Travis McElroy. I see you, Joey Votto. I see you other people in Cincinnati. Thanks for having us. Now we're gonna try and we we'll get out there when when travel becomes a thing. I want to I want to come out to the natty. We'll see you soon. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio and Jordan Cowling are our associate producers. We get help from Casey O'Brien, who, judging by his social media presence, is currently at a lake house somewhere in Minnesota, going insane. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is by The Go Team, thanks to them and their label Memphis Industries for letting us use it. You can also keep up with the show on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne, and I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.